Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360 here in Washington. And joining me now from New York is Law 360 editor-at-large, Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. I'm doing pretty well. I feel like maybe I'm finally sort of getting the hang of all the different ways to do like televideos and teleconferences with people uh, in this new normal of, uh, you know, coronavirus. Yeah. Well, if today's recording session is in any indication, I have a little bit of work to do because (laughs) I'm on the technical difficulty side still, but uh, that's okay. Um, So we should just get right to it. Natalie, what do you think when the Supreme Court on Monday announced that they would be holding for the first time in its 200 plus year history, teleconference oral arguments? So I got very excited. But I was honestly really surprised. I didn't expect them to do it. I, I, I legitimately thought that they might just, you know, kind of do everything on the papers or like push everything back. Yeah, it was, I think it was last week when we were kind of, you know, just brainstorming about how it would work. And uh, I think neither of us were presuming that they were going to do it. So a delightful surprise for court watchers who are now going to get some a chance to listen in because the court, and I'll just kind of get to it, but the court set aside uh, 10 oral arguments from the March and April sessions that it had canceled previously and uh, put them on a schedule for a teleconference uh, between, uh, I believe it's May 4th to May 12th. Um, So the 10 other remaining cases are going to be heard in the fall. But yeah, like like we said, you know, it was kind of a a nice surprise for people who didn't think they were going to be able to hear the justices <laughs> de- deliberate over some of these weighty legal questions on its plate, including, I'll add, uh, a pretty high-profile fight over uh, access to President Donald Trump's financial records. Yeah, um, the I think we've talked about this case before, that the president is fighting subpoenas from House Democrats and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office um, to get access to some of his financial records. So I think it's no surprise that that one of the the top ones to be held um, this term rather than than being pushed back um, in terms of kind of also some h- other high profile ones there's a a pair of consolidated cases examining um, the religious and moral exemptions from the Affordable Care Act uh, you know the requirement for employer health plans to cover birth control so that's also uh, among those uh, listed for the teleconference. Uh, docket. But the very first one actually is going to be a case involving Booking.com and the Patent and Trademark Office. Um, You know, the case is appealing a ruling by uh, the Patent and Trademark Office that the web address is too generic for trademark protection. Um, So I think that means, if I'm understanding right, Williams and Connolly's Lisa Blatt will be among the first attorneys to be arguing through the rather unprecedented process of, you know, teleconference before the courts. So I'm very interested to kind of hear how it all goes. Um, I know for me personally, like, you know, doing a just teleconference on the phone with a couple of people is usually fine. But after you get over like five people, it can be a little unwieldy. So it's a little start and stop. Yeah, exactly. So I just don't know how this is going to go with the nine justices and the lawyers who are arguing. I'm like, how are you going to if there if there's no video component, which my understanding is at least there hasn't been talked about having a video component. How are you going to tell when, you know, someone's supposed to talk? <laughs> yeah, really? Luckily, I think uh, Lisa Blatt and a lot of the other attorneys arguing are experienced enough to be able to distinguish their voices. You know, could you you could imagine uh uh, you know, that that would be a pretty embarrassing moment. And I doubt that the justices are going to be the types to be like, uh, yes, hi, this is uh, Justice 
Ginsburg chiming in. I just had a follow-up question to that last point. <laughs> I don't see them doing that. So um, luckily, they have each pretty distinct uh, voices. I don't think you're going to confuse, for instance, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with uh, Elena Kagan or Neil Gorsuch. That's true. Yeah, has That's his own true. very deep baritone, I'd say. And, but yeah, there's think, a lot of challenges to the to the telephonic oral arguments. I mean, like you said, you can't read facial expressions. You can't really see who's buying your argument or who's not. Yeah, at least the, I guess for the Supreme Court litigators, there is some other examples to look back on because the Federal Circuit has also been doing some telephonic arguments. Um, and one of our reporters, Danny Cass, you know, kind of got the lowdown from some of those first few attorneys to go through the process and. Uh, as one lock lord uh, partner uh, said, it was a surprisingly pleasant experience. It wasn't, you know, I think as perhaps uh, unwieldy and, you know, different and difficult as maybe some some had worried about. Yeah, I talked to an attorney who had argued in the federal circuit about, you know, how you get in the headspace to kind of argue in a court because it's such a formal setting. Um, and apparently the Federal Circuit had been, you know, they had the, the court-martial gaveling in and crying out the oh yay, oh yay. So in case anyone, you know, needed a reminder um, to, to kind of bring your A-game, I think that the court is probably going to be, you know, all the bells and whistles of its normal argument, to the extent possible, introducing that over the phone. Um, but yeah, it seems like it would be kind of a very rare experience. I don't know that we'll get any first-time arguers in the, in the May session, but that would certainly be a, a story to tell if that was your first time arguing, quote-unquote, in the Supreme Court, you know? So moving ahead, um, the court has also relaxed paper filing requirements, um, you know, so they're now requiring only a single paper copy for document filings in cases that had not been taken up for review and has carved out several types of filings for which an electronic copy is sufficient. Um, it seems under the previous rules, parties, and I did not know this, parties had to file 40 paper copies of certain positions and briefs um, in oppositions and other filings, which yeah. I think is just um, remarkable and unfortunately gives me like bad reminders of like going before my co-op board, which like also required like crazy amounts of copies <laughs> of all the paperwork that I had to like literally steal like the 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 boxes for the Xerox copies from the office to try and fill all all of them with to like deliver them to the co-op board um so I am I, I think this is a good place for the for the Supreme Court to go yeah. and I hope they yeah. keep that kind of relaxed paper filing requirement after this it's yeah it's an extraordinary amount of paper. I mean, if you're talking about the 10,000 petitions and, um, uh, you know, responses or, or briefs in opposition and responses that are filed in the court each year and you, you know, multiply that by 40, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty crazy volume of paper. So, I mean, uh, I, I mean the court said in its order um, that it was, you know, this was going to be, like others, like a temporary thing until further notice, but... I mean, you kind of have to be like, okay, it's, you know, what is it? What year is it? 2025, 2020, <laughs> 2020. I mean, you have to, you have to at some point. I know it feels move. like five years yeah. since the start of the coronavirus. This Jimmy, year feels like it's, it's been five years. Yeah. Only been a month. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So this is just the latest um, change that the court has made to some of its uh, process rules um, since the outbreak began. Uh, others include obviously shuttering its its doors, postponing the arguments, now the teleconference arguments, there have been um, uh, extensions for other filing deadlines, uh, and there's been some changes to its um, process for 
in-person delivery of documents. So, uh, yeah, it's the, the court's slowly but surely kind of um, adjusting its 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 old uh, rituals to the uh, situation that we got going on. So getting back to kind of the regular business at hand for the court, there were no opinions this week, um, but uh, there was a case that was withdrawn um, from the Supreme Court, which I, I think uh, kind of... Uh, popped up on, on a lot of watchers' radars. Um, it was a Texas abortion case um, where, I think we, we talked about this last week, actually, right, Jimmy, where there was an abortion ban uh, put in place because of the coronavirus ap- a pandemic where the state was saying, you know, it's too risky, you know, we're not, we have to postpone, ban abortion procedures for now because of the, of the risks. Um so the Fifth Circuit partially reversed its decision that had okayed that ban, um, and they're letting medication abortions proceed, um, although other abortion methods that would require more, you know, contact with health professionals um, to be blocked. Um, so in doing that, um, the parties that had been pushing uh, for the Supreme Court review withdrew their petition. Yeah, so this one will probably continue to be litigated in the in the federal district court. But um, as we talked about last week, I mean, this isn't the only um, similar uh, abortion litigation that's been going on during the coronavirus pandemic. Um, there have been similar um, orders in Louisiana, in um, Oklahoma, um, and I believe in Ohio as well, um, where, uh, like you said, abortion has been kind of left out of the of the types of essential medical procedures that are allowed during coronavirus. Um, and so those cases are also being litigated. Uh, you, you could potentially see this thing return to the Supreme Court. So it's something that we'll, we'll be keeping our eye on. But yeah, as of now, they've, they've withdrawn their latest appeal from the Fifth Circuit. So um, the Supreme Court won't wade into the um, unfolding coronavirus slash abortion drama just yet. Although it's got, it's currently figuring out, um, you know, it's, it's, huge abortion case on the merits this term, which we've pretty much all but forgotten about at this point, but uh, the one out of uh, Louisiana involving its pre-coronavirus um, hospital admitting privileges. So I, d- I doubt they're eager to to take on, you know, another very topical and high-profile abortion dispute at the moment. Now we want to go a bit more in-depth on another filing that's reached the justices this week. Um, it is involving a case we've talked about before, um, on the wealth test for immigrants that the Trump administration has put in place. Um, it is back at the Supreme Court because of the coronavirus. And we're going to get into this further with our senior immigration reporter, Suzanne Moniak. Suzanne, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about, just set us up with what this wealth test, also known as the public charge rule, what it is and why is it coming back up again before the court? Well, the public charge rule was finalized in August. It's a rule issued by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security that allows it to deny green cards to immigrants who it believes may likely be a public charge, so to speak, in the future. They evaluate that by weighing a number of factors, including their past usage of public benefits, as well as more subjective factors like immigrants' health, education level, and age. Earlier this year, the U.S. Supreme Court allowed the Trump administration to implement the rule while a number of lawsuits against it challenging it continued. Um, But this past week, uh, a number of states, including New York, the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic here in the U.S., 
asked the U.S. Supreme Court to rethink that decision, warning that the rule is discouraging immigrants from using public benefits, and this could threaten public health. Yeah, so this is another way in which the coronavirus has kind of affected pending litigation. So how exactly do, do are, what is the exact argument that the that the states are now making to the Supreme Court to kind of go back and look at the stay that you mentioned happened in, in January and, and reassess the situation? What are the kind of the specifics that they get into? Um, well, specifically, they're arguing that the, you know, irreparable harm to the public analysis has changed now that we have a global pandemic, um, especially in the states like New York, um, that have been particularly hard hit by it. So they're saying that the public charge rule has specifically caused a lot of confusion. One of the arguments DHS has always maintained is that immigrants will be unlikely to enroll, disenroll from public benefits because many of them aren't eligible for them in the first place before they have a green card, which is true. But advocates say that immigrants are afraid of using any and all benefits and receiving health care because they're just confused about what will and will not count against them if they're ultimately applying for a green card. So they're just staying away completely. So it's like a huge public health issue, potentially, if you have a lot of people who are afraid to use some of these public services because they think that maybe it'll what de- disqualify them for, for, from green card or any kind of, uh, you know, uh, the proper legal status. Exactly. Has the government weighed in on the rule or the filing uh, during the pandemic? Um, well, so during the pandemic, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services did issue a statement saying that use of public benefits as related to the coronavirus would not count against immigrants. Um, they indicated that if somebody used, say, a health benefit to receive coronavirus testing, that they could then indicate that on their green card application, that that was the reason they used that benefit. But in the public charge, in this latest filing before the Supreme Court, advocates have said that this actually may have even caused more confusion. Um, and the Department of Homeland Security is stating that they will you know, consider the coronavirus as a factor when weighing the totality of the circumstances. They're not saying that it'll be totally fine. And I think immigrants are concerned that it won't be considered or that they won't be able to prove the benefit they used was for coronavirus. So it's just a lot of confusion. It's interesting. It's it's kind of a trend that we've been seeing, especially in some of these immigration cases. I'm thinking in particular about DACA, where you've had um, some of the uh, the the DACA recipients in that case file additional briefs before the Supreme Court, saying that this pandemic has introduced a lot more uncertainty into the situation, and now is like the worst time for the Supreme Court to to rule that it is uh, or to allow the uh, the Trump administration, I should say, to to rescind it. But it seems to be following a, a trend of how the pandemic has affected and upended uh, a lot of these uh, immigration uh, battles in court. Yeah, that's true. Recently, um, a group of uh, plaintiffs in the DACA case uh, filed brief at the Supreme Court, noting how many thousands of DACA recipients work in the healthcare industry right now, which is, you know, very overwhelmed and experiencing shortages and just stressing how important it is that we keep these DACA recipients here more now so more than ever. So there's definitely a lot of areas in which um, a Supreme Court decision on immigration could have great impact during this pandemic. Suzanne, as always, this has been great to speak with you and really get into the nitty gritty of what's happening with immigration at the high court. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much again for having me. Now, before we end the show, uh, I just want to talk a little bit briefly about Justice Breyer. Uh, You know, I feel like he's been very public so far through the pandemic, sharing his pot roast recipes, conducting Zoom chats with students and and doing other media appearances. And now he has joined a company with Cardi B in in terms of... uh, 
recording a 2020 census PSA ad um, that has been, I, I think, getting a, a bit of attention for, for the justice. The fact that you just said Justice Breyer has joined company with Cardi B, it's just like, I couldn't even have imagined that sentence like coming out of anyone's mouth just a few months ago. But yeah, you're right. He I know. has. Now, 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 to be clear, they're not in the ad together. But like when I'm thinking about the sense, they of the should ads, be. Car- that would be Cardi- a great ad. Oh my gosh, that would be great. <laughs> but Cardi B is like one of the first ones that pops up to mind for me, at least, because I feel like I noticed her doing census ads and like PSAs like early on. Um, so uh, you know, I I just I guess Justice Breyer is is considered yeah. a as as a hip and uh you know influential as uh cardi b for to be doing these psas i'm just imagining the marketing meeting where someone's drawing up a list of people they're like let's see who we get here uh okay definitely cardi b maybe justice stephen Breyer. that's like the the next one that you think (laughs) anyway if not for cardi b then for justice Breyer, fill out the census online you can do it it's pretty easy yes please (laughs) (laughs) Now, I think that'll just about do it for us. Um, It's been great chatting. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Schrader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporter this week, Suzanne Moniak. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 and the term.